Welcome to Voices from the Bench, a dental laboratory podcast. Send us an email at info at voicesfromthebench.com or look for us on Facebook at Voices from the Bench. Greetings and welcome to episode 118 of Voices from the Bench. My name is Elvis. My name is Barbara. And Elvis, I am actually at home today, my first day off since October. So super happy to be joining you, but I definitely am getting some Florida sun. It's 95 degrees out here. Yeah. Just went run. I know how much you're jealous of me and my Florida weather, so I just thought I'd give you an update. It's beautiful. I am not jealous of 95 degrees. That's a little on the hot end. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit on the die end when you go for a five-mile run at 1030, but I did it. I'm so excited. So during all this furlough and people not being open, you never had an extra day off during any of that. So this is truly your first day off in a long time. Yeah. You know, us technicians, we go like 120 miles per hour and then all of a sudden we say, holy crap, I'm a little burnout. And uh, so, yeah, I'm a little burnout, needed a couple days in the sun and I'm actually, it's done me a whole lot of good. So you know how the lab business is. So since you've been on the bench a lot lately, who's picking up your slack from not working? Is, <laughs> oh, is your son doing it? Or? Yeah, my son's working from 9.30 to 4 a.m. now, so he switched shifts, and then I hired somebody else that can help me with the interiors and glazing and all of that. So finally got myself in a good position where I could step away for a couple of days. I'd like to go for a week, and I'm working on that, so we'll see. But yeah, things are going really well. So 9.30 at night till 4 in the morning? Mm-hmm. How many people do you have work that shift? Um, there's about six. Really? Yeah, higher end, which is part of the laboratory, just my son. And then there's yeah. a line that comes in from, I think, 11 to 5 or 11 to 6, something like that. But yeah. There's definitely a shift there. We're trying to switch everybody around so they're not too close together, which I think I mentioned in the past. Mm -hmm. I just heard that they're closing all the bars down again here in Florida. Now we have to wear face masks, even going anywhere to businesses. So starting to get a little serious, and I'm not sure where it's all going to lead to, but uh, I actually wore a mask in Publix, which was super fun. Yay. (laughs) (laughs) Is this third shift? After COVID, or have you guys always done this? I'm just kind of curious. Actually, after COVID, we had two shifts, and then we added a third one to separate everybody. Interesting. It's really worked out well. Yeah. Our performance and the way that we're manufacturing and getting the workout has really, really, really turned us around. So it's been a great addition. Yeah, sometimes I wish I could walk in here in the morning and have a bunch of work that people did in the middle of the night while I was sleeping. Was done. Yay. (laughs) Yeah. It's working well. That sounds pretty cool. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we are here at the last Monday of June, which we've been celebrating all month with the Dental Laboratory Appreciation Month. So make sure you stick around to the end of the episode. We got a few more audio thank yous to celebrate. So make sure you stick around to the end. This week, we bring you a conversation with a lab owner that is rich in family history. We all know how much Barb loves that family history connection. Yep. Jerry Kaiser took over his dad's all-removable lab in Connecticut. He worked along brothers and sisters, and now most of his kids are in the business. We talk with Jerry about the lab, how it's grown over the years, how they handled it during the pandemic, and Jerry's thoughts on making sure our industry stays relevant with good quality when we pass it on to the next generation. So join us for some good conversations with Jerry Kaiser. 
Barb, I got a call from a doctor who's looking for a new lab. What? That's awesome. Did they start to send you work yet? Yeah, but unfortunately her impressions are terrible. Miss margins, distortions all over. I don't know what to do. Well, she's probably looking for a new lab because the last lab stopped taking her impressions. You know, bad dentists, they go from lab to lab to lab. Yeah, that's probably what she's doing. But, you know, I just got this account. I don't want to lose it. When I talked to her, I asked what impression material she was using, and it was some brand I've never heard of. Yeah, there's a lot of crappy impressions out there. I don't understand why offices use cheaper materials to save money up front, but in the end, it ends up costing them twice as much, and with all the remakes for us and for them that they end up doing. And, you know, we gotta eat the remake costs. Yeah, that's so true. I really wish I could find an impression company I could rely on for help, and the doctors can get the help they need for us to get the records we need. So there you have it. Check out Kettenbach. This German-manufactured impression materials taking the U.S. by storm. Not only do they use top-notch patented technology, but they have a dedicated customer service team that will work with your accounts, which is amazing. Interesting. So do I just call the doctor and tell her to switch? You know, what if she doesn't want to? Well, you know how doctors are. Most of them are pretty open and say, hey, if I can do better, please let me know. So if I was you, I would tell her to call Kettenbach Direct, give her the number of 877-532-2123. They've actually got a $99 starter kit. They will put her in touch with a local rep. And they also have a lot of materials that labs use every day, like the Panacell Lab Putty Hard and Lab Putty Soft. They've got soft reline, they've got bite registration material. And when a lab orders, you guys listen up, 25% off your first order. All you have to do is mention the code Dental Lab Podcast 25. Plus, they sell direct, so there are even more savings. Whoa, wait a minute. I've heard about that lab putty. We use it here in our lab. I didn't even realize it was made by Kettenbach. That is amazing lab putty that our technicians love. I'm going to check out kettenbach-dental.us right now and then call my new doctor. So just hearing Elvis say it's an amazing lab putty, there you go. There's a super awesome recommendation. So call him. Thanks for your support of the podcast, Kettenbach. Thank you. Voices from the Bench. The interview. We are pleased to announce someone out of the state of Connecticut. Jerry Kaiser joins us. How are you, sir? I'm fine, Elvis. How are you? I'm doing great. And Barbara, how are you? I'm doing great, too. Thank you. You're a CDT. Yes, I am. And owner of Murray Kaiser Dental Lab. Yes. So tell us, how did you get into this industry? My dad was Murray Kaiser, so I grew up in a dental lab. And my first memory is being about maybe five years old, and my father had a person that had not fully grown. I'm not sure what the political correct term for that is anymore. Mm-hmm. A little person. So my father had accommodated this person by building steps in front of all the plaster sinks so this gentleman could step up and it would be at his working height. Well, for a five-year-old, it was at my working height. (laughs) That's nice. So we would take sheets of wax and we would warm them up on the flame and we would make boats. In the front, we'd make it into a V and the backside, we would make a stern on it. Then we would take a popsicle stick, take a piece of paper and 
cut out a piece that would be replicate a sail. And then we would take sticky wax on the top and the bottom to affix the sail to the popsicle stick. Then take the sticky wax and put it to the inside of the boat and put it in these big sinks and blow across <laughs> them and see who won the race. Nice. So that is, that's my first memory of being in a dental lab. And now you're still in it. The question is, do you have a boat now? <laughs> yes, I have a, quite a few different kinds of boats. There you go. So the passion went beyond just in the dental lab. Yeah, it's interesting that you point that out because now you're talking about two of the three passions I have in life, you know, the dental laboratory and boats. And I think that you're picking up on some, a theme here. <laughs> I remember when I was a kid and my dad owned a laboratory and we used to go in and make putties and faces out of the, the model stone. And then we'd use the dowel pins to make faces and yep. we'd glue all kinds of stuff and we had a blast. So I totally get where you're coming from on that. It's our first uh, entry into uh, laboratory technology. Yep. Pretty cool. Well, I thought that CoSoft was a cologne. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not exaggerating my father would come home and he would have this really unusual like methyl methacryl like kind of odor and, and you know he was a dapper guy dressed really well you know he would wear men's cologne but this the smell he had all week sure and it wasn't really until i was late in my teens that i really connected the two pieces that's hmm. funny you know there are certain little parental tapes that you know are part of your lifestyle that you reflect back on, you realize where the connections are and where they started and where they continue to be. Yeah. So were you like me and your dad gave you your first job at 17, 18, or did you wait a little bit? No, my father was more direct than that. So in the state of Connecticut, you get your driver's license at 16 and you have to go with a parent to the DMV mm -hmm. and they give you the practical test. So my dad goes with me and Pass the test. We get back. He goes, well, we'll drive back to the lab. And I said, what do you want me to do? He goes, well, I got some packages for you to deliver. One up there. <laughs> I'm not oh. kidding you. That, that, that was it. And, you know, feet right to the fire. Um, my father was first generation born in the United States. Mm -hmm. So he was really key on education. And he never really encouraged any of us to be technical in the dental laboratory. It was It was there. It was something that he did. I cleaned. When I was in the latter part of my college years, I would go in every Sunday and clean that thing top to bottom. And he would give me a fair amount of money to do it because it was done. Yeah. Wow. needed it done. Yep. So that was my really my, my thread and constant. When I graduated college, I graduated as a high school English teacher. Hmm. And I had an interview for a prospective job in September. This was in, right at the end of June, 1976. I go for this interview and it was a wonderful interview and the head of the department said, oh, I want you to take on one more class this summer so that you'll be able to use audio visual. <laughs> Again, this is in the mid 70s. So, you know, we don't have all the computer stuff. We have uh, audio visuals and, you know, overhead projectors and stuff like that. Yeah. I said to him, if I take this course, do I have the job? He said, I can't commit myself right now. <laughs> I'm like, all right. So I go home and my father calls me up and says, how did the interview go? I said, I thought it went really well, but this is the end result. He said, yeah. well, what are you going to do? I said, uh, I, I got to make some money. He said, look, Betty quit today. You want to work for me for two weeks until I find somebody new. Mm. So you can do it and I'll, I'll figure out what I want you to do. I was like, sure, I, I'm okay with that. And he met me the next morning at the front door. 
And he said, out here, I'm your dad. Anything you want to talk to me about, give and take, I'm good. He said, you cross that threshold, I'm the Lord and master. Oh, jeez. <laughs> don't ask me about jumping. He said, how high or anything? He said, just start jumping. I'll adjust it from there. That's all wow. you need to know. Your dad sounds like a hard ass. <laughs> My father was very, very disciplined, not a hard ass. He set the parameters right up front. This is the deal. This is what I want you to do. He never told me how much money I was going to make. Hmm. Never told me how many hours I was going to work. So I've never worked a 40-hour work week in my entire life. Never. Hmm. Okay. End of the first week, he came up and handed me a paycheck, and it was an equivalent of $5 an hour. Yeah. End of year would be $10,600. Well, hmm. the teaching job had only offered 8800 for the year. Wow. Sweet. Yep. Yeah. And he said to me, so how's that? I'm like, oh, it, this is fine. And I really, really liked it. What were you doing? Whatever he told me to. Okay. <laughs> is that what Betty did? No, it was, I was waxing cases. We're a removable lab. And so we do a lot okay. of processing, a lot of setups, a lot of wax ups. And I got into the investing side of it and, you know, boiling out and it just kept rolling and rolling and rolling. And then we started working with different materials we started using the pore techniques and hydrocolloids, and we were doing that. And, you know, we just kept moving farther and farther forward. My brother, who was six years older, was a electrical engineer. And he had been working in the defense industry during the Vietnam War. Oh, wow. After Vietnam, he got married and he's like, I don't need to work here anymore for my deferment. I really like to work in the dental lab. So he walked in and my father said, I want you to learn how to do parcels. You're going to go to, uh, in those days, it was CMP Industries, Nobilium, Tyconium. They've had several different names. Now it's Nobilium. Yeah. But they have a training center up there, and you're going to go and learn how to do it. And literally, my brother went up there, took a week course, and came back. And at the time of his death, I think he was probably one of the top 10 partial guys in the world. Not in the States, in the world. This guy was truly gifted. Any bar that he ever cast for an implant case didn't have to be cut and soldered. Everything was done the first time out wow. because he understood expansion, contraction, the materials, venting. Just It was just one of those guys. He had that gift, plus he had the hands to go with it. So it was sure. a great combination. So we started just making it work. And my father said, look, I don't want to work as much. I'm going to start going to Florida. You guys can work in the lab. And that was it. Just We worked together in 1985. My sister who's 10 years older than I am, was a hygienist, mm. decided to want to make a career change. And she pleaded to her father and her father came in one day and said, hey, boys, you got a new partner. Here's your <laughs> sister. So we, wow. we embraced that. We brought her in and we started looking at you know how the lab industry was working. We had no interest in expanding into any of the fixed world at all. We did no crown and bridge and had no interest in doing it. My father died suddenly in 1995. The three of us became equal owners of the business. We had developed our own internal kind of workflows. My sister was a salesperson, customer service, and was outstanding at it. Mm -hmm. She had a 95% closure. Wow. Awesome. She went to see. The only time that she ever really walked out of an account was when he asked her about pricing. And she looked at him and said, if you're not here to talk about my work, then... And it's just about pricing. We can yeah. run that on the phone. There's no value to me being in your office. And he apologized to her and they sat down. He became a longstanding account after that. Nice. But we worked well together. My brother was the partial guy, very specific guy. 
give him a big case. You didn't have to think about it. It was done. It was yeah. it was done right. And I was a production guy and did really, really well. 2008, my sister, who was 10 years older than I was, and said, I want to retire. And we had made provisions for her retirement. Mm-hmm. She retired out. And three months later, my brother was diagnosed with cancer and died in 2010. Wow. So yeah, 2010, I became sole proprietor. At the time of his death, I had 22 technical people working in the lab, all removables. And at the end of about four months, I was down to 18. And I just kind of kept it there. And I vacillate between 15 and 18, depending on the number of players that we have. Yeah. That's a manageable number for us. Yeah. It's up pretty well. I have a coronavirus question. So you're in Connecticut. Are you guys back to work now and rolling again, or is it still really slow up there? Okay. So love your question. When we were impacted by the coronavirus and decided to close for the safety of our employees, we still had a fair amount of work in the laboratory that was pending. Mm -hmm. So we spent two weeks just trying to figure out what to do and not impact anybody's safety. Yeah. And I kept 10 employees on full pay. The drivers and clerical people, unfortunately, they got furloughed right away. Yeah. And I had a number of my technicians asked to be laid off. They were afraid of the virus and I accommodated everybody. So I really kept more than two thirds of my staff on at full pay. And after two weeks, you were like, look, what about if we go in the building by ourselves and we'll do this? And the next day, the next person could come in. So we, we started brainstorming and we created a number of workflows. It wasn't perfect, but it allowed us to come up with questionnaires for our personnel, really trying to d- define how much social distancing they were doing. Mm-hmm. Not being judgmental, but knowing that what is, for example, I have a, a young woman, she's 35, who last year from March till December had stage four cancer ovarian cancer. She had chemotherapy, she had radiation, and I was concerned about her immune system being depleted. She goes in for COVID-19 antibody testing. And what does she have? She has the antibodies. Go figure. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. So what we did was we came up with a series of workflows that worked for us. Then we had certain guidelines that were limiting us. We could only have 10 people in the building at one time. That's just the way it was. Mm -hmm. So we have quads, the main productions in a 4,000 square foot open room with 14 foot ceilings and windows. And so it's hard to take quads and socially distance. So we figured out that we could bring six technicians in on a shift. So we went in and we created directional arrows on the floor. And we had six technicians come in at a time. And the way our building is set up on the perimeter, there are perimeter doors. So the Mm -hmm. technicians that sat on that side use those for entrance and exit. Before everybody came in, in the morning, they they line up temperatures and we have a checklist. They immediately go in, wash their hands. They were all been issued N95s and they all issued two gaiters, brand new gaiters each to wear the gaiters while they work. And we're only working right now two shifts, four or five hours a shift. Yeah. And every hour, there's a designated 10-minute slot where each employee, first person that's between zero and 10 after, has to get up and they have to wash their hands every hour. If they want to use the laboratory or go out, get a drink or something, uh, that's their prerogative. But 
uh, and the workstations are disinfected when they get there. They're disinfected when they leave. They're disinfected when the new shift comes in and disinfected when the old shift leaves. And then every night I have someone that comes in and fogs the laboratory. Wow. Wow. In addition to that, our HVAC systems, I have scrubbers and UV lights. That's fairly new technology. Mm-hmm. There is the anything that's in the air, we're going to kill it. What's a scrubber? I know about the UV technology. What, what is a scrubber? A scrubber sits inside the A-coil and works its magic somehow on the bacteria that's in there. Wow. I, I'm not exactly sure. But, and I found out about that this winter when I was in Florida. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about them. And when I came up here, I spoke to the, my local guy. And he goes, yeah, they're really becoming quite popular. And then the disinfectant that we're using is a Quat 64. It's the, the second largest chemical company in the world. It's called ChemSafe. And they're really a company that does a lot with chillers on top of like hotels. So you don't have Legionnaires disease. So I was able to get this disinfectant. It's highly concentrated. So it, stuff should last us for quite a while. And we just spray everything and, you know, gloves. We've got a pretty good protocol. Yeah. To go back to your question now, Barbara, yes, it is starting to loosen up for us. All of our universities have taken a back seat, but on the other side of it, the universities, the third years are no longer going to be able to work in the labs on their setups. Mm. So now that piece of work, instead of being done by the student, is going to have to be outsourced. Oh, yeah. So that's something that we're working with as well. You know, we're just being pretty safe. All on four conversions are on hold. In-office visits are on hold until after July 1st. We will reevaluate. Mm-hmm. We're not doing anything. You know, June 20th comes, and I wanted to wait another 10 days minimally to see what impact it had. Our chair-side consults, our Zoom meetings, mm-hmm. Yeah, I have several doctors that are insistent upon having someone on site when impressions are taking. And our best workaround for that is one of us, mostly myself, will sit in the parking lot, get out of the car. They can bring it out. I'll be all gloved up and disinfected on my side. I will look at it, take a picture. And if it's good, it's good. If it's not good, they'll have to redo it. Wow. Do you charge for that? <laughs> is that something, is that a service you charge for? Or is that just something that you do to make sure they have adequate impressions? It's both. If we don't, okay. I don't charge for it. It's about customer service. I mean, you know, I, look, yeah. I'm a removable only laboratory mm-hmm. and we're really focused on middle and higher end products. So I'm trying to stay, make sure that these general dentists do the job that they need to do so that these cases come out with predictable results. Yeah. If I don't give them that input right then and there, we're not going to know it until the case is really done. If I send them a verification jig and they sit there and they go, oh, this fits in, and they're cranking this thing down and they take their x-ray, sure, it's not sitting passively. So yeah. it, it's a little bit of an inconvenience for us to send someone out, but I've trained seven people to do it. Mm. We don't have just a person to do it. Cross-training, remember, I'm a teacher. So cross-training yeah. is really, really important, especially in a removable lab because your volumes can vacillate rather quickly, a little bit more difficult to schedule it. We've got it down. We are With COVID-19, we have realized that scheduling can work better for us. We're just going to implement that more and make it be more successful for us. Are a majority of your accounts in the Connecticut area? Or do you work a lot all along the East Coast or the country? Or I would say that 70% of our accounts are within 100 miles of the lab. Yeah. 
I would say the larger concentration would be on the East Coast from Maine to the Carolinas. Mm -hmm. And then I have accounts spotted throughout the United States. Most of them are as a result of my meeting them at some point in time and connecting or them looking for a specific kind of work. For example, Ryan 83 attachments. Yeah. There aren't a lot of labs that really understand them. Well, Ryan 83 was imported to the United States by Dr. Joseph Grasso in 1983. He was head of removable prosthetics at the University of Connecticut. Mm -hmm. So also the guy that developed the Grasso class, which you're going to say, what's the Grasso class? He started out to disprove McCracken's theory about the eye bar. Mm. He didn't believe that that contact would work. A point contact would work for retention. That was a big thing for him. Yeah. Well, he did indeed prove that McCracken's theory worked, but... He didn't like the aesthetics of an eye bar. Usually eye bars were used on canines. Mm -hmm. You had to transverse a lot of tissue to get to the tooth. And if there was any sort of inflammation in the tissue, the clasp would irritate it and it was just ugly. So he came up with a horizontal eye bar, which is called the Grasso clasp. Now you can move it back to bicuspids. And the origin of the clasp came from the saddle. So there was a lot of flex to it, so it could engage an undercut in 010 or even go a little bit deeper, Mm -hmm. but it was highly aesthetic. But he was one of these guys that got involved with this stuff. My brother was heavily involved with him, and we kept moving forward with these kinds of interactions with people. That's where we got to where we are out to. Are you still at the bench? Do I still work at the bench? Yes. I love that question, Barbara, because (laughs) I got to tell you, I had this conversation with my brother in the Westin Hotel at a Cal Lab meeting in the early 90s. Wow, there's a Cal Lab plug. <laughs> he said, you got to get off the bench. And I looked at him and I said, the reason I got in this business was because I like working at the bench. Mm-hmm. Never wanted to be an owner. Never wanted to be any of the things that people may think that I am. All I wanted to be was a guy sitting at the bench, working on dentures, listening to music, wearing a t-shirt and shorts, and just hanging out. And he said, that's the wrong way to think. And I'm like, okay, then, you know, you tell me which way I need to go, but that's where I'm going. So yes, I still work at the bench. (laughs) I have really no intentions of giving it up. I have, so I have a bench at the lab in the garage in Florida and at my other house on the lake. Oh my God, you're kidding me. I got it pretty bad. People come in my garage in Florida and they're like, What's this contraption? I said, I can do anything you want me to do with that contraption. It's a lathe. It's just a regular lathe with a chuck on it. Yeah, this yeah. is what do you mean? I said, tell me what you want me to do. Cut this out. Boom, here it's done. Yeah. That's so cool. So what, when you go to Florida, they send you cases from the lab? No, I just am all set up in case they have to. Oh, man. That's awesome. We did that a couple of times with my father when he lived in Florida. And one Christmas Eve... He said, send me a few setups. You guys are really busy. They got lost. Oh, no. Oh. And I had, yeah, we lost like three dinar articulators. It was a mad mess. So no, I don't have them do that. I don't need to do that anymore. I mean, working at the bench for me is therapeutic. Yeah, same here. You know, yesterday I went to work and I have five young men that are eligible to become CDTs. Nice. Oh, that's I said, that's a little bit challenging for me to teach them. So the the idea was when I came back, I was going to have an ongoing course with these five people and I was going to work with them on manual setups and then flip it over and do digital setups and manufactured dentures conventionally 
and then print and bond the teeth digitally. Nice. But right now with the COVID-19, I'm very cautious of going into the lab because of my age. And I also have a compromised immune system. So when I go in, I typically go in and I isolate myself. I have a, my regular office. Mm-hmm. I have a bench. <laughs> I was going to say, oh my God, you have a bench everywhere. <laughs> yeah, we haven't piped gas in there. I'll just use like an alcohol torch or something. But, yeah. you know, I don't know if either of you have ever seen the pose of Arnold Schwarzenegger in the gym with a pair of shorts on it. And the, the header is, it's just therapy. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so for me, dental laboratory technology is like therapy. It's hard to describe. For me, I find it very satisfying. Every piece that I do, I find gratifying. And if I get to see the patient and be directly involved in the process, it's even more exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Agree. If I had an opportunity, I would have done more work in annioplastology. In other words, facial reconstruction using silicones. I had a, a young man working for me for three years that was, he was gifted like that. He mm-hmm. really is like a Halloween costume guy. Yeah, yeah. We did half a face for a patient. Wow. It was stunning. If you think about the process, if you think about it, you take a patient and you can make them an immediate denture and you take rotten teeth out and you put a denture in and they have a smile back. Then you think about that person who that you can expand that and, and put into some implants and give them restore gingiva and give them really emerging profiles and a real smile. Now take that a step further. Now you're giving back somebody who is facially deformed, yeah. giving them the ability to walk outside and not be stared at. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. It's killer. I'm telling you. Do you do any um, documentation of these cases that you do? I mean, have you done any articles or interested in it? I'm sure it sounds like you could. I think that I have written 14 articles wow. over the last few years. I'll be honest with you. I haven't been doing as much stuff lately. I really haven't. I've been spending a lot of time exercising. For my entire career, exercising for me was always something I had to work in between work and family and family and work. Same here. Now I'm able to indulge myself and I really am. Sure. I'm sinning a lot. I really am. What do you like to do when you work out? I'm doing everything. I'm I'm walking. I'm riding a bike. I'm swimming. I Skype with a trainer twice a week. I do Pilates. Damn. (laughs) Yeah. As a matter of fact, I just bought myself an e-bike because where I live in Connecticut is mountainous. And (laughs) riding a regular bike, I'm just not a marathon person. I just don't have it in me. Yeah. But I bought an e-bike. It's an assist. It doesn't have a throttle that you push. It becomes a moped. It's an e-bike. So I'm picking that up in the next couple days. Nice. We went for a ride three weeks ago and my wife went and she got on that bike and she came back from that bike ride. And I have to tell it, share this with you. She had the biggest grin on her face I have ever seen. Mm. I've been with my wife for 47 years. Wow. This was like a pure (laughs) five-year-old and it was unfiltered and it was just like pure ecstasy. That's great. So, you know, you're going to get her a bike next, right? Or you already have? The owner of the shop said, look, he goes, I have another competitor of this bike I'd like you to try, and then you can make your decision. So we get the competitor out, and we take the competitor for a ride. And the competitor was a little bit easier to get your leg over. It did have the throttle on. It had a cushier seat, this and that. And my wife gets on it, and she rides it, and she comes back, and she gets on the other one and rides it, and she comes back. And while she's riding, he said to me, so what do you think your wife is going to be interested in? And I said, Oh, I couldn't tell you. I said, 
it's a wild card. I said, if you want to go to the logical side, one would think that at her age, she'd want the cushier one. She comes back <laughs> and she goes, no, I want this one. And it's a full-blown mountain bike. It's awesome. nine gears forward. It's a pretty cool bike. It just in terms of how it all works. So we'll probably start riding on average of 300 miles a month. I mean, it's not really killer on it, but we live on a lake, we kayak, we paddleboard, we swim. I'm living the dream. Absolutely, positively living the dream. Yeah, you sound like you are. That's a great yeah. story. So now yep. you guys can ride bikes together. Yep. And she's got the badass bike to boot. This bike is diesel. And it's the bike <laughs> is made by Yamaha. Oh, wow. I have two Yamaha outboards and a Yamaha jet ski. So Yamaha has been making e-bikes since 1991. It came off their motocross series. Most of the e-bikes in the world have a rear hub driven called a Bufang. It's uh, made in Germany, and most of them use that as their drive unit. Yamaha, they built all their own components, and they use a mid-motor bike that picks up on the cadence of the pedal. So it's activated by your energy. When it feels you need it, you're off. Nice. Yeah, so when you look at a hill and you say, oh, shit. Oops. Oops, sorry. No, you're fine. Okay. <laughs> At what point am I going to have to dismount this bike and push it up the rest of the way? It doesn't happen. Yeah. So it's good. I have the time now to indulge myself. So writing articles and all of those peripheral things that used to take hours and hours and hours, I'm not doing as readily. So you mentioned uh, printing dentures. Are you guys printing and bonding teeth? Yeah. So we were the beta for dense glycerona and carbon. Oh, nice. We were the ones behind the scenes that did all the stuff at the preliminary stuff. We found a couple of flaws. Yeah, we've been printing them since day one and having really good success. I mean, each time the process changes a little bit, we have to change our workflows, but it's been really, really beneficial for all of us. And my middle daughter, Emily, the hygienist, has regular contact with the people at 3Shape working on design aspects of it because, oh wow, you know, 3Shape, they're binary code writers. They're not dental technicians. I know. That's one of the, the pieces that are out there. I mean, they, all of the softwares are not written by technicians. Most of this, the commercial softwares are written by code people with input from technicians. So we're trying to give them more direct input about how things look. One of the suggestions, for example, was when you wanted to have different sculpted gingiva, you would actually have to hand build it, you know, take out your tool and build it up, mm -hmm. yada, yada, yada. And, and God forbid you lost the, the working field and you had to do it all over again. So came up with the gingivator and the gingivator is basic, moderate, full anatomy. Wow. And it prints it that way. And, you know, it depends on what the technician wants to do with it. There are those laboratories that are printing this product and spending a lot of time with the design so that when it comes out, they cut the sprues off, do a little bit of adjusting, quickly polish it and send it out the door. And there are other labs that are hand skilled oriented that may slightly overbuild it and then hand grind it to get it in. Oh, I see. Yeah. If you do that, it's almost indiscernible to the naked eye how that denture was made. If someone that has those hand skills takes a slightly overbuilt printed denture, you can make it look just like a process denture, IvoCap, Success, doesn't matter what material. It's just killer. Just killer. I love that stuff. And the digital file, the fit is pretty spectacular. That's the one thing that really captured me about the digital dentures, the digital partials. 
It was just a pure fit. Wow. I mean, I've worked with a lot of different impression systems over the years. Plaster, ZOE, Impergum, everyone that's currently on the market now, they're all okay, but they've all been modified so they sit faster and it's more comfortable for the patient. Where'd the accuracy go? Yeah. yeah. The next time you want to really evaluate a maxillary impression, you know, someone throws it at you and says, oh, I use this material. And look how much detail I got. And I said, yeah, wow, you got the muscle attachments and you got the freedom and you got the, you got this. I said, but let me ask you just one question. I'm having a little difficulty with. What's that? I said, how come your palate is perfectly smooth? Yeah. What do you mean? I said, where's the tissue in this? How do you know where your tissue is? Mm-hmm. What are you talking about? I said, okay, so what's the purpose of a post-palatal seal? Well, uh, to compensate for processing shrinkage. I said, because, all right, so now we're going to print this denture, okay, and there's not going to be any shrinking. How well do you think it's going to fit if it's passive there? You have a passive situation because your material, as it went through its exothermic curing process, pulled away slightly from the tissue. Okay, ZOE and plaster didn't do that. Plaster would dehydrate the tissue and stay locked onto it. Mm-hmm. So that when it came out, you got an accurate representation of what was there. You had to actually put some sort of medium on it so that it didn't stick to your, your stone model. That type of accuracy comes from printed dentures. That's what kills me. Yeah. Absolutely, positively kills me. But that's a good thing for everybody out there. And the results that I've seen from the newer scanners, the accuracy like out of a prime, yeah, it's remarkable. All the other ones are coming up to speed, the trios, the care streams, they're all coming up to speed just as quickly. And they're great for mouth guards, but for soft tissue, the prime is really a special tool. Are you doing a lot of printed dentures off of the prime scans? We're doing as many as we're allowed. And remember, just when we were really coming up to speed, Late February, yeah, we got caught oh. with this thing that just took a whole quarter out. Yeah. yeah, but hopefully we come back up to speed by the end of June. When I say up to speed, I'm talking about making money enough to be able to sustain ourselves, let alone put us into the profit area. We're all hoping to get back there. <laughs> well, there's a lot of questions that have been asked me throughout the industry, like, so what do you think the impact is going to be? At the last count in late fall. We were hovering around 5,900 dental laboratories with payrolls. Mm-hmm. What do you think it's going to be as of July 1st of this year? I don't know of any that's actually closed yet. I'm hoping the exact same number. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's going to be an interesting situation because we don't know how many of them are open or not open because the yeah. demand really hasn't been there. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay, and how many of them had enough cash to cover three months of expenses? Yeah, which is huge. I agree. And how many dental offices had the cash to cover three months of losses? You know, it's like both sides of the coin on this this whole issue. The answer, Elvis, is I, I don't know that we really know. And that's the part that's going to be the unknown. Yeah. I feel pretty comfortable being in the removable world that we may have a little bit of a leg up. Because when people go for treatment that don't have a lot of money, we can offer them an intermediate appliance until they're ready financially to do something more dramatic. You see the the unemployment number today? That was was something that I've never even seen a number like that. Sure. But even being open for this first month back from uh, the pandemic, 
I think most people are pleasantly surprised with the amount of work we're getting. And I'm hoping it's true with you, too, that you're surprised with the amount of work. I'm thankful for the amount of work. Well, absolutely. We all are. I'm not surprised because surprise for me is if somebody comes up with a dump truck and dumps a load on my front lawn, that would be a surprise. (laughs) You know, I mean, listen, we're, we're used to April and May being end of year for dental programs. Oh, yeah. So you can have 200, 225 number of dental students that all need to get their work done within a very short period of time. So our production can go from 50 units a day to 90 units a day with really just a hop, skip, and maybe a couple of days. So that the ability to adapt and roll with that, those are surprises to me. I'm really thankful that it's happening. I'm hoping that the numbers come back and that it makes sense. That's the part that's more challenging. Yeah. Yeah. I can tell you that here at Night Dental in uh, Oldsmar, Florida, we got quite busy this week. So we're probably back up to about 70% of where we were, which it happened pretty rapidly for us. And we do a lot of zirconia, Emacs, implants. But it's certainly in my area coming back pretty quickly, which I am thankful for. Trust me. And in Connecticut, restaurants and gyms aren't open until June the 20th. Okay, so I mean, we're still in a modified lockdown. My wife and I are going to get takeout tonight from our favorite restaurant. This is the first time we have eaten food that we have not cooked since March 15th. Wow. Yeah different ball game up there where you're at on the east coast for sure we were in florida up to three weeks ago and that was no bueno yeah not a good place to be so we decided we got in the car one morning and drove all the way here didn't stop wow yeah we're in the same boat at our house we have not eaten out or had takeout or anything it's all it's all been at home yep well this place is funny it's the same chef and same owner for 35 years and the way they have their system set up You have to call in advance, order the food, pay for the food, and you tell them what time you're going to pick it up and what kind of car you're driving. Yeah. Been there, done that. Yep. And this place is out in the middle of nowhere. I mean, Mm. like, when I say nowhere, I mean, there isn't anything around for five miles in any direction, but we're going to go and pick it up and give it a shot. So you said you had a daughter who's a hygienist. Do you have any children in the lab now? I have all three of my children are in the laboratory. Wow. Awesome. So then you have third generation. That's probably going to take over soon, huh? I say soon, but you sound like you're going to be at the bench forever. So no, no, I um, no, I'm not going to. No, I'm, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I, if anything, Barbara, the COVID nineteen has done something for me that I had never been able to do for myself, and that was to do the deep exhale. Yeah, and realize I'm not in charge of this situation. I have to be patient and let it come my way. So I chose to select those items that were within my immediate grasp, you know, exercise, food, sleeping, and most importantly, relaxing. Huh, something dental technicians don't do very well. Never. Okay, well, I have been relatively relaxed. My oldest daughter is a school counselor. She works in a middle school, high school. It's associated with Trinity College. It's a magnet school. She runs my systems and all my bookkeeping. Nice. Been doing it for over 10 years. Emily is my middle daughter. She was an assistant and a hygienist and is now my digital person and really quite competent. She was offered a job at one of the universities that we work for. Oh. Wow. Yes. That's a little unethical. (laughs) Well... 
it was, I didn't look at it that way, Barbara. You know, I looked at it as very flattering. Yeah. I found sure. it very flattering. And you know what? I said to her, hands off. It's your choice. <laughs> she said to me, well, what do you think I should do? And I said, I, I'm not going to even indicate. She said, what do you think my options are? I said, that's a different answer. I said, you could go to work for them. You could not go to work for them. Or you could potentially say, hey, look, how about if I work for you one day a week? You know. Mm-hmm. So like, she did present all of that, but they were looking for someone to be there on a full-time basis. Yeah. So, but she, so she was open-minded and did it that way. But she is, um, she's only been with me full-time for about three years. So she still has a, a ways to go. But on the digital side, she's pretty savvy. Let, let's put it this way. She can design a case in Connecticut and send me an image. I can look at it and say, go. And goes in the mouth without a trying. Fantastic. Yeah, we've done a couple of cases with one of the prosthodontists as a study group. And we did a couple of cases that he sent in just impressions. Mm. No bite registration, oh. anything like that. And said, make the case. And yeah, it worked out pretty well. And then my youngest daughter is an artist, is a yoga instructor, and she runs the lab. She's the operations. Oh, there you go. Yeah. She has a keen memory, a great sense of people, and really steady under fire. Simultaneously, I don't know that I would want to cross hairs with any one of these young women if things, oh, yeah. if things weren't going the way that they wanted them to go, I, I I've been privy to them tagging some people, and you know I'm, I'm looking at them and I'm saying, okay, you know, I mean, uh, you want to let the dog out, let the dog out, but remember, once that dog bites somebody, you're going to have have a problem. So they haven't bit anybody yet, so it's been good. So it's interesting. Um, in addition to my daughters, I have long term technicians. So the oldest technician I have is 52. He's been with me 35 years. Wow. That's amazing. His father and I worked out together. And when this young man dropped out of high school, his father brought him down. The kid is gifted, but he's a kid. Even at 52, he's still a kid. He's a technician. Mm. And then I've I've got another one at 30. The vast majority of them are 20 years and longer with me. And then I have a smattering of some younger talent that we picked up. Most of the younger talent are college graduates. My carbon operator got a degree in biology. Wow. And manual setup, digital setup, design suite. I just think that that's the way to go. Yeah. Do a lot of different kinds of mouth guards and appliances. We've been milling acetyl resin partials. When Morrison first came out with the pucks, Chris Shermerhorn and I got together and he was doing his thing and we were doing our thing and we've been doing them forever. We've checked out all the different materials. We play with everything. I mean, you know, when you've got that much experience in the room, you can play with stuff and you say, I like this material or I don't like this material. And I think that mouth guards are going to be a huge area of of growth for all of us, especially with the COVID-19 and some of the materials that are out there. And we're getting a lot of publicity out of these membership clubs. There's a lot of awareness that they're creating that before people were just like, "Uh, I don't like that. Now it's a lot of awareness and it's, it's a good thing. Awesome. Very cool. So what's next for your guys' lab? We know COVID's slowing everything down, but what are you looking to do next? What I really think I'd like to do is I would like to identify dentists that want old-style work, crowns with attachments and partials. Mm. The numbers are declining as they age, but the reality is, is that there aren't as many labs out there that can even do that kind of work. 
And it's a shame that the patients are denied that opportunity simply because there is no mechanics out there that can satisfy the dentist needs. I think the dentists have the capability of doing it. Hmm. You know, and you can do that same type of partial. Patient loses their posterior teeth bilaterally. You can drop an implant in each quadrant that's endontulous quadrant and make a partial. You know, you don't have to do an all on four. Yeah. It's great if the patient has the money, but it doesn't have to be that way. I think that there's a lot of opportunity for hybrid materials that are going to be forthcoming. You know, there is a couple of clever labs out there that are taking some of these nano ceramic pucks and milling teeth and merging them with denture bases and creating these high end abrasion resistant teeth on denture. Yeah. Okay. Now, it's a great concept, and I think that it'll be very telling as we move forward. I'm not quite ready to jump into that one yet, mostly because of the cost. I mean, the prohibition that's out there right now is the cost of what it really takes to get into stuff and what your return on your value is. And sure. let, you're producing a particular product and you have numbers that can support that kind of growth. It's just something that's daunting. And then the other part that becomes challenging is... How do you get your employees really excited about something that's totally different and they have to work really hard at it? Yeah, that's always been a problem. And they have to do something that they really don't think about doing when they're at work. You know what that is? Think. Yeah. You want me to do what? You want me to? I'll tell you a challenge I gave to my employees. I wanted them to do digital mouth guards. Mm -hmm. And I said, here's what we're going to do. You're going to get impressions taken of all of you manually, and you're going to pour the models, and you're going to make a manual Murray Kaiser mouth guard. We have one that's hard on the outside, soft on the inside. It's not a suck down. It's manually made, blacked out. It's a really good appliance. And then I said, you're also going to get scanned, and you're going to import the scans, and you're going to make yourself a printed night guard. Five people. How many of them you think did it? One. Exactly right. <laughs> exactly wow. right. And here's what really burns me. I said, it's okay to do it on my time. Oh, wow. Sure. If I was there beating the drum, lighting the fire, maybe it would have happened. It's like, really? I mean, I think that that's the easiest way to promote value in something because it's what's in it for me process. Yeah. And it worked really well. But the world is starting to evolve in a different sort of way. The expectation of employees is a little different than it was back when. The expectation of the client is a little bit different than it was back then. Now, when we talk about cases with dentists, we have to add one additional category. You know what the category is? What? No. <laughs> Doctor's expectations. Yep. Oh, yeah. We used to have to satisfy the patient. No longer. Now we have to satisfy the doctor. And we have to satisfy the doctor not only on the aesthetics and the creature comforts and the customer service, but we have to match their price as well. And mm. it's like, I can't really whack the stone and get water out of it. It's not happening. I don't have that Moses stick to create the miracle. It just yeah. isn't really where we are. Yeah. But I'm confident that at some point we will find that median ground where it will work for everybody. As I get older and get more involved in digital, I've been involved with removable digital since 2013. So this is not our first rodeo. The part that I get a little bit concerned about looking down the longer tunnel 
is the depth of handcrafted experience that has not been involved in the development of the algorithms that go into dental technology development. Mm -hmm. And when that tribal knowledge is not available any longer, what will happen to dental technology in totality? Because the algorithms are only as intelligent as the binary code writer is, but they have no working knowledge of what we do at the bench. True. That piece is, I don't want that to be this doomsday approach. That is a question that I ponder frequently. And it's not about dollars. I mean, we're, we're compensating people relatively well. That whole thing that was 20 years ago, I think the playing ground and costs are closer now one to the other. But it's more about that experience. I mean, Barbara, I remember in being in your lab when your son was there and you were trying to show him how to do stuff the way you did it. Yeah. And you were saying, you know, I need this, this young man to be proficient. And the next time I saw you in Chicago, I said, how's your son doing? He said, he's a whip. I got it going really well. And he can do digital. Now, what would have happened if he was working at the bench and his tutor was an algorithm? Would he have had the same result? It's a talented young man. We know that he has the aptitude and the capacity to learn. Would he have gotten to the same point had he not had that guidance from his mentor? You know, yeah, totally agree. Yep. Okay, what can be done potentially to develop some sort of this tribal knowledge to acquire it and ascertain it? I mean, they talk about like uh, the Holocaust and they, they interviewed thousands and thousands and thousands of survivors. And then as they die, that number gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. So is there a way within the framework of your mentorship or within your podcast for you to create some sort of tribal knowledge? I mean, have like a Robert Cryer get on and talk about how he did an aesthetic wax up and maybe do a video of it that gets archived somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just putting it out there. I mean, I talk to people about partial dentures all the time and they're like, there's nobody around that can do them anymore. Yeah. So what do we do? We extract teeth, we put implants in, and we put bridges that really don't serve the patients as well as perhaps a partial would have because we didn't have the technology to do it. And the reason I'm so passionate about saying this is the state of Connecticut, we are manufacturers. We have a lot of the war machine. We have helicopters, we have jet engines, we have submarines, and we have a small state. Ten years ago, I could get anything I wanted made within the industrial park that my business is in. Can't do it anymore because the, all of that has been traded out, and now a lot of it's made overseas. Yeah, you know the fitness craze that we're experiencing with the COVID nineteen. Nobody can go to the gym. Yeah, either of you try to buy any dumbbells lately? No. Yes, I did. I did. I tried to buy them on Amazon and I tried to buy them at Dick's and I tried to buy them at Target because my son wanted them and there was none anywhere. And you couldn't buy them from Walmart. So I started looking in the first week in March. You can't find bands. You can't find weighted balls. You can't find anything. Okay. Why? Because it all came from China. Now, remember something. Weeder, who was a big bodybuilding guy, all that stuff used to be made in the USA. York dumbbells, guess where it was made? York, Pennsylvania. Where Densply was, where Caterpillar was made, where Harley Davidson was made. What company is still left? Densply. And what's main divisions there is the TrueBite division. And what division will probably be the next one that becomes extinct? Pre-manufactured teeth. Hello. 
Yeah. What happened to York, Pennsylvania? It became a ghost town. So is there any way that we can, or you can, as the leaders of this, consider trying to create some sort of archival dental technology thing before that population is no longer available? I'm just throwing that out there. That's a great idea, partner. It's a great idea. I mean, the foundation doing a lot of that. The foundation, yep. I know, has educational programs and videos. But uh, I hear what you're saying, Jerry. It's true and concerning for all aspects of society. So if I was to say, can you name me the top 10 ceramic technicians in the United States? Could you both agree on 10 names? Or would you You'd have to quantify it? Because now, wait a minute, are you talking about aesthetics? Are you talking about production? So, you follow what I mean? Yeah. Now, yeah. If I ask yeah, yeah. the same question, I say, okay, name for me your top 10 removables. You don't start breaking it down. It doesn't get broken down that way because the removables, you're talking about full denture guys or ladies. Because Ruth yeah. Burke, I, I apologize by not by saying that. It, it's, Ruth Burke is very much in the group, so it, it should be politically correct technicians. Partial denture people. Got anybody you can say off the top of your head? No, actually. Okay. Because that number is rapidly dwindling. Yeah. The number of partial denture manufacturers in the United States is down to one. One is made in China and the other is made in Germany. Not a good thing anymore. So I, I just want to make sure that we talk about things that are relevant to our survival as a community. That's what we're trying to do. We're yep. trying to make sure our industry stays relevant and survives this this change. And this is an important topic to discuss, but it's not an easy thing to do. But the possibilities are there. And I come across so many young, passionate technicians that that's really heartfelt. I just would like to have them have the opportunity that I had to learn from those people. You know, my father was strict, but man, when he came to setting teeth, he's like, okay, you're going to set this case up today. First setup I ever did was a maxillary arch, eight hours. Wow. He'd say, set tooth number nine. I said, he goes, no, that's not right. What am I looking at? He goes, you're supposed to be looking at this. Go back and do it again. He did not have the best teaching skills in that regard. But the skills that I learned from him that way, believe it or not, when I became a CDT and I was doing my practice setups for full dentures, my father was in Delray Beach, Florida. There was no Skyping, no Zooming, no nothing. Mm -hmm. I'd get on the phone and I have a headset on and he'd say, okay, what, do you, what tooth are you setting and how are you looking at it? Now, we could actually connect and the setup came out right. That's great. So those kinds of things are out there, and I would love to perpetuate that if possible. Yeah, a major problem with it is, is people taking the time to show the other people. I mean, I have young technicians in our lab, but unfortunately, most of our training is done on the job while you're making product. It's hard to take that time for the experienced technician to show that next generation. There is a small fix that you can try. It takes a little bit of soul searching, a deep gulp, and a deeper pocketbook. But take an hour a week yeah. and shut it down. Yeah. Just shut it down and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. You know, Elvis, if you had an oral surgeon that called you up and said, Elvis, I want to do a program with Nobel implants, and I want you to be part of it. I want you to show my doctors how you'd pick up a cylinder chair side. Yeah. You'd make the time to do that, wouldn't you? 
Heck yeah, I would. Okay. Because, <laughs> because you're sitting there going, wow, wait a minute. This ain't no $50 denture, baby. This is some serious, you know, we can make some money. We can make this happen. Yeah. Get out there. I'm going to have exposure. Okay. If you took that same mentality and said, look, I've got this young technician or I've got these three young technicians and I want them to learn how to set up partial dentures because I'm having a heck of a time teaching people how to grind around a class. And you spend an hour with each one of these people. Get your dummies. You have to get all your, you can't just grab a pen and say, well, let's work on this one. Oh, no, you can't go any farther because this has to go out the door. You come up with your, your study skills. Yeah. Okay. Here, this is how you're going to do it. Oh, you screwed it up. No problem here. You know what? You're going to make a new one. How beautiful is that? You take your, your technician. You take the same model. You say, look, why don't you bend a couple of raw wire class? A what? And, you, and they come back an hour later with both index fingers bleeding. Okay, because <laughs> yes. they stuck themselves and they got a blood blister on, on the ring finger because they grabbed it with the pliers. Yep. But then they learn respect and then you can sit there and say, now this is how you bend it. Bang. You know, maybe my concepts are, again, antiquated, old school. But our business, even though we are using modern technology and algorithms, still was based on principles of art. And that required a lot of manual dexterity. Yeah. And intuition, we can water that down a little bit and take it away. But if you don't continue that tribal knowledge and everything ultimately defaults to what a canned package can do, how do you differentiate one laboratory from another laboratory if you're both using the same softwares, same milling machines, same pucks? Yeah. Cost? I mean, I don't know how that really is going to shake itself out. And final question of the day is this, is it best to practice the best dentistry or the most economic dentistry? And where do we want to label ourselves? Do we want to be economists where we're doing everything to scale for profit or are we doing it because we know it's going to work? If I asked either of you to replace tooth number 30 in your own mouths, what would you put it on it? The best number 30 I could get made. What material would it be? The best material that would be for the situation. The answer is all gold. Absolutely. The highest gold content I could find. Why? Because we know it's the best. Because you know the abrasion resistance of malleable gold yeah. is the closest to natural dentition. That's what I have. Exactly. That's what I have. In the age of zirconia, in the age of all this beautiful non-metal restorations, I put full cast. It's not the beauty of it that makes the difference. The thing of it is, is it's, it's the hardness. The part that people fail to really acknowledge is that the ceramic materials have exceeded the strength of natural teeth. And at some point, push comes to shove, the stronger always survives. Yeah. So that's if you don't have the expansion of and retention of a culture and tribal knowledge, then everything defaults to an algorithm and someone working at it that's like looking at a screen going, okay, yeah, I got all, I got the margins. Okay. Yep. Yep. This inclusion looks good. Contact. Okay. Good. Move it on. Yeah. Yeah. It's all good. I think your kids are doing a great job with this program. I really do. Well, we appreciate that, Jerry. And, and thank you so much for coming on. You've given a, an interesting perspective. I think you're doing amazing things at your lab there. Trying, trying. I mean, you know, at, at this point in my life, I am what I am. We've accomplished what we've accomplished. And I always would like to have things different, 
But I am very satisfied with where we have come and where our potential is to go, you know, as long as the force is with us. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful stuff. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thanks for coming on. You're welcome. Appreciate it. A huge thank you to Jerry Kaiser for coming on the podcast to talk about his lab and his history with this industry. Jerry has a good idea about making sure we take time to teach the next generation more than just how to use the software. We mentioned in the interview that the foundation has some great videos on their website to teach the basics, but it's super important that technicians use the knowledge they have to pass on to our younger technicians to ensure that our industry stays strong. We can't just rely on software. We have to rely on skills and brain power and everything that our fathers taught us. We can't just rely on software, guys. We got to make sure we pass on our skills to the next generation. You got to understand the basics that the software relies on. And I see it here at the lab all the time. You have people that come in and all they know is the software and they honestly don't understand why. They just know that they do. It's sad. And Jerry made a good point. You know, one of the great things about having guests on a podcast is actually how we get them to be a guest. So Jerry's son-in-law, who doesn't even work in the lab, reached out to us on having him on. What's funny is he wanted to know about what his wife, who's Jerry's daughter, and Jerry did at the lab. So Jerry told him, hey, listen to this podcast. Awesome. Yeah, so he listened to the podcast and then he thought Jerry would be a good guest. So he sent us an email, and it turned out to be a great conversation. And we love how these are all set up. (laughs) So if you know anyone, or you want to be on the podcast yourself, reach out to us at info at voicesfromthebench.com, and we can set it up. As you can tell from all the different people we've had on, we'll talk just to about anybody about anything related to our dental laboratory industry. We don't care if you're a technician, a manager, an owner, a vendor, a manufacturer, a dentist, a dental assistant, or anyone associated with our industry. Heck, I'd even talk to a delivery driver just because we know how important they are. So reach out to us, info at voicesfromthebench.com. We'd love to have you on. So we've come to an end of June. I'm so sad. And the end of Dental Technician Appreciation Month. But to be honest, we should appreciate them every single day of the year. Here are a few more thanks that we got last week. This is Donnie Bridges. I'm the Eastern Regional Sales Manager for the Oregon Corporation. And since this is CDT Appreciation Month, I wanted to take the opportunity to thank all the CDTs out there that I am proud to be able to call friends and extended family. This industry is like a big family and With this month being CDT Appreciation Month, it's a perfect time to pause and reflect and think on all the people that have selflessly mentored me. And so many of you have had such a huge impact on me and so many other people in this industry that you know and all the lives that you've touched. is uh, It's really amazing and it's amazing to be able to be part of such a close-knit group. And I'm proud to be able to call myself a CDT also. So... Happy June, and keep making people smile. Thanks so much. Hi, everybody. Uh, It's Louis Zara from Dental Services Group, and really wanted to take a moment to thank all of you that have blessed and created our industry, the CDTs and our technicians of the world. 
I mean, what an incredible inherent desire to serve in an industry that is an essential part of dental healthcare. So thank you all for the perseverance, the hard work, the endless hours in your pursuit on behalf of other people, the excellence in healthcare. Hey, this is Denise at By Design Dental Studio in Atlanta. And I just want to give a shout out to all of our certified dental technicians out there. I'm so inspired by your dedication to your craft and to our lab community. You truly are the backbone of our profession. Way to go, you guys. This is Dan Elfring at Pickle Prosthodontics in colorful Colorado Springs. June is Dental Technician and CDT Appreciation Month. And as I enter my 42nd year of being a dental technician, there's a lot of people who've had an impact on my career and help me make it to where I'm at. And I would just like to recognize a short list of a few of those. And I apologize for those that I uh, forgot. But probably to start off with, Robert Cryer, who is the godfather of removable and probably the best in the world, in my opinion. Then I have Bob Hicks. We have Bart Hyde. Eugene Reusengertz, always a big help on you name it. Mark Chan, who really helped me through some digital stuff during the COVID stuff, getting it ready. Brian Carson's always been a help. Renzo Chiappe is a a great technician and uh, well-respected. Dennis Urban, Mark Wagenseal from Vita has taught me so much about occlusion. Ruth Bork, Jim Collis, the Air Force funny Bob Colston, James Davidge, Mike Cumbie, Bob Saprina, and the late T.G. Hornisher. I was fortunate enough to get some of his instruments after he passed away, and I think of him daily. So, T.G., thinking of you. Melanie Williams, Lee Mullins, Carl Brown. Some of these aren't dental technicians, but they've been a big inspiration to me, and uh, Carl is a denturist in the U.K. Stefan Rohrbach, Charles Clemens, Big C, is a good friend of mine. A.J. Lucko, Bill, Buzz, Connell, John Wilson. I mean, that guy knows everything about everything. If you got a question, give him a call. It doesn't matter if it's dentistry or concrete work or mechanical work. Just, I mean, I, I don't believe this guy. But Patch Garcia. How about Tino Velez? He came over and uh, spent some time together. Eric Kukuchka. Boy, that guy's come a long way in a short period of time. Oscar Galvis, then you have Sander Polanco, Renata Vano, and Dora Rodriguez, the uh, Palomalo trained technician, Arian Deutsch, Mark Williamson, CDT of the Year, David Lindy, Lynn Wood, you got Jeremiah Nas, Billy Goddard, David Jackson, James Angeloni, the denture man, how about John McMillan and Alex Wunsch? Tom Zaleski helped me out when I first starting out in the removable. Luke Conk, for all of his videos that he has done and put out, especially now for uh, all this COVID, people have a lot of time to do videos, and he has a great YouTube channel. My customer support team at Whitmix, I couldn't forget, Corey, Bryce, and Evan, and especially my girl, Sherry Weatherby, Whitney McCartney, my new help in the digital world, and I couldn't do it without my co-worker and daily backup, Wes Schlau. But then I want to give a special thanks to the wonderful Rosie from Preet. 
I think about what she's all done and created dental web pages for dental people to keep connected during all this COVID crisis. She's just been a true positive inspiration to all of us. So those are just my short list and uh, sorry for those that I forget, but I wanted to keep it short. Thank you very much. Our big thanks to everyone who took the time to send in their audio thanks. It means a lot to Barb and I when listeners engage with us in the show. Either on the podcast or on our Facebook page or Instagram page, we love to hear from you. And not only that, but we thank you. Not just in June, but all year long, like Barb said earlier. Thanks for being so great in a great industry. Thank you. All right, everybody. That's all we got. We appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Have a good one. There's only two.